All right, biohackers, who doesn't love a yummy, creamy whey protein shake? Oh, it is such a treat. And I really love it as a meal replacement, post-workout recovery, maybe even a midday snack. So this is why I have to tell you about Puri Protein Powder. I absolutely love the bourbon vanilla flavor and the chocolate, but I think I got to go with the, the vanilla as my favorite. So it's smooth, it's delicious. And you know what else? It's pretty awesome that the flavors come from real natural ingredients like the bourbon vanilla seeds from Madagascar. And let's talk about quality because there's a lot of junk whey protein on the market that I would not recommend. So the Puree whey protein, it comes from pasture-raised cow's milk with no hormones, no GMOs, and no pesticides. This is because Puree's mission has always been to be the best at offering pure, clean, and superior products that, that support health and well-being. And what I think truly sets them apart is that they are fully transparent with their product testing. Every batch is third-party tested against more than 200 contaminants and certified clean by the Clean Label Projects. Not all brands can say this. Plus, each product contains a QR code so you can personally scan it and review the test results at home. I know you're excited to try it out. So what you're going to do is head on over to puri.com slash biohackerbabes. That's P-U-O-R-I.com slash biohackerbabes. And then make sure you use promo code biohackerbabes at checkout to save 20%. All right, let's get back to the show. We're digging deep and asking the questions we need to ask. Years of stress and not just emotional. I was depleting my body. I was malnourished. I'm working out like crazy. I'm eating all these healthy foods. How could I not be well? We have to get back to the basics. We can change the way our genes are expressed. Anyone that wants to improve their health or upgrade their health, they should be biohacking. My name is Renee. And I'm Lauren. We are the Biohacker Babes. We're sisters and we're joining forces to empower you to become your own biohacker and upgrade your life. The Biohacker Babes podcast aims to create insight into the body's natural healing abilities, strengthen your intuition, and empower you with techniques and modalities to optimize your health and wellness. Because life is too short to not feel your best every single day. This podcast offers health, fitness, and nutritional information and is designed for educational purposes only. You should not rely on this information as a substitute for, nor does it replace professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. If you have any concerns or questions about your health, you should always consult with a physician or other healthcare professional. Thank you for joining us and welcome to the show. Welcome to episode 45 of the Biohacker Babes. I'm Lauren and I'm here with my sister Renee. Hey guys. And we have our friend Dasha Maximov on the show with us today. I'm so excited to sit down and chat with her. So I'm going to read you her bio and then tell you my personal story about meeting Dasha. So Dasha Maximoff, former management consultant turned entrepreneur, found that the available information for addressing her chronic pain and depression from multiple concussions was limited and frustrating. Specialists across the globe offered reductionist approaches and outdated recommendations. This frustration led her on a path of health exploration to educate herself on alternative and new ways to heal her brain. In 2019, after biohacking much of her immediate chronic pains, Dasha sought to bring this information to others by organizing the Health Optimization Summit, one of the largest alternative and preventative health conferences in London. 
Quickly, she saw that a gap existed in the health world surrounding women-specific health topics. To solve this, she created WealthCo, an online global community focused on evidence-based science. The online forum bridges together doctors, researchers, healers, and laywomen to focus specifically on knowledge sharing about women's health issues. Dasha believes that health is best achieved when a person is informed about their options and that this is possible only through connecting together and learning from each other. A problem is solved much quicker when there are multiple perspectives looking at it from multiple angles. Thank you, Dasha. I feel like you have so much to share with us. Little backstory about Dasha. The three of us have been Instagram friends because that's what social media does. You find like-minded individuals and then you feel like you know everything about them, which is so wonderful. I am so lucky that I got to meet Dasha in person. I think I commented or liked on one of one of her Insta stories that she posted while she was visiting New York and she immediately responded asking if I wanted to go get coffee. And I was like, oh, wow. That is not something that I would ever do in a million years. I was immediately drawn to her and inspired and just <laughs> obsessed with her. So I said, yes. And we, we met up at Hacked in New York City, biohacking gym. We walked and got matcha and talked for a couple of hours. And I love her so much. She is now a, a friend. And Renee and Dasha are e-friends. So Dasha is really special because she is pioneering the women's biohacking movement. As you know, there are not a lot of women in this field, and that's what inspired our podcast in the first place. But Dasha has done an incredible job at bringing women together across, not not just the country, but around the world. And most recently, she created Wealth Co., which is a platform for women. So we can dive into the women's piece of this a little bit more because there's so much from the men out there. And thank you to Dasha for really spearheading this and creating it. She's done a lot of wonderful things, as you can see from her bio. So thank you, Dasha, for coming on and chatting with us today. We're so excited to have you. Guys, thank you so much. It's exciting. I'm yeah, glad to welcome. be here. <laughs> so tell us today. what you're doing in quarantine. Where are you? What has been your experience <laughs> so far? <laughs> you know... It's been actually pretty good in the sense that I think I've been looking at this as an opportunity and looking at it as an opportunity to learn about myself and about all the things that are around me. You know, I think oftentimes we're just running and running and going and going and we don't pause to say, okay, well, what is actually important? And for me, at least it's been, it's been an opportunity to pause and read all the books that I, that I have been wanting to read and yeah, and just take a break out of the hustle and bustle. I agree. It's been such a wonderful opportunity. And we were talking before we got on the recording, but I can't imagine not having this time at this point. I mean, it's a terrifying time. We don't know where the world is going. It's not a great place to be in, but I'm just so grateful for the silver linings that have come up out of this. Yeah, and I, yeah. Think, I think for me, what's been really interesting is seeing how how I've reacted and how other people also have been reacting. So it's an, to me, it's been an interesting exploration into how we react and how our emotions drive us. So what I've been seeing is that fear is a really large emotion that oftentimes we don't necessarily even go into, right? Or we hide away from it. But in reality, fear is such a motivating factor. So if you think about, you know, hoarding toilet paper or, you know, <laughs> running to the store and getting all these things or buying up all the vitamins or, you know, or having a point of view that, you know, you shouldn't be out in the parks or whatever these things are, at the crux of it, it's often fear. And it's a fear that somebody is having. And so what I've been noticing is, you know, in quarantine, thinking about how 
how I react to other people, how I, you know, if I'm flippant to something or if something triggers me, what is that fear? What is the thing that I'm trying to either protect or hold myself from or, or that I'm not sure of? And so therefore I'm, I'm lashing out or I'm acting in a certain way. So it's just what I've been noticing in, in general over, over kind of internal thinking and kind of my own growth, but also over quarantine, which is where is this emotion coming from? Is this a fear that I have? And if it is, is it something that I can control or if I can somehow alleviate or, or show myself that maybe that fear is not necessary? Yeah, that's such an interesting thought. Just seeing people like at each other's necks about the toilet paper or whether or not you're wearing a mask, you just go, what is, what is causing that or what is going on for that person? It really has become so divisive. Yeah. I have to say I was at Quest Diagnostics yesterday running some lab work and you could feel the panic of everyone there in line with their masks. Just felt very strange. I feel like I'm fortunate I haven't really felt the fear. I know Lauren, we've talked about this. I think the first week I was very fearful because you couldn't get toilet paper. People were saying have enough food for 21 days. I was like, I don't know how to survive for 21 days on what I have. So it was about a week of that. And then I got through it and it's been a great time really. But Sasha, that's an interesting perspective on fear for sure. Yeah. I had the same exact reaction. So my first week I went out, ran to all the stores, picked everything up, ordered stuff on Amazon, and then realized, wait, where is that coming from? Is it fear yeah. that I'm not going to have? Okay. So if I'm not going to have enough toilet paper, all right, how am I going to wash myself? You know, it's <laughs> a simple thing. If I don't have enough food in in the store, you know, in the pantry, then what does that look like? And so then to me, I've almost used it as, you know, as a knocking down of myself of saying, okay, well, if I don't have enough food, then what does that look like? Oh, wait, I don't know how to fast, right? I've never been fasting. All right, let's take this opportunity and say, all right, what does that even look like? Would I be able to survive two days without food. You know, so there's, I think to me, it's, it's the quarantine has forced me or given me the opportunity if you want, right. However you want to phrase it to yourself of, of exploring that and really exploring why I fear certain things. That's really great. I know that you've had several pauses in your life, things that have happened to you that have forced you to slow down. You've experienced several concussions. So I'd love to step back and, and talk about how your brain injuries inspired you or motivated you to get into biohacking. Just tell everything about your story. It's really sure. interesting. Yeah. So I, I have had now six concussions and part of that is because I'm clumsy. Part of that is because <laughs> I enjoy pushing my, myself in sports. And part of that is I think also because once you've had one, it's a lot easier to have more. So my first concussion was I was 18. We had a car accident the car flipped twice over and then t- rolled over to the side twice. We, it was my mom, my dad, and I, and we were lucky to, to get out alive. Uh, I had a completely open forehead, you know, gashing. Um, and that was the first big, big concussion. Since then, I started noticing in my 20s, I started noticing that I had long-term memory loss. So family vacations were not as clear cut in my mind. I would have to have a family member jog my memory of, you know, we went to this place and we did this and then we had this restaurant and then all of a sudden it would start coming back. But that that long-term memory has, or the 
changes to my long-term memory are still prevalent today. But fast forward and in my 20s, the next four concussions were all sports related. So kiteboarding, wake surfing, uh, whiteboarding, um, uh, mountain biking and skiing were all kind of sports related concussions. And it was just, you know, hitting your head against the water or hitting my head, my, you know, a whiplash with, you know, tumbling down the the mountain after hitting black ice while skiing. So there was a number of those. And, and then the last one was actually interesting enough, uh, salsa dancing. So, oh no, so not, you, not a usual activity, I would say that is concussion prone, but unfortunately I was being spun and we bumped into another pair. And unfortunately, rather than being caught before my head hit the floor, it hit twice against the cement. And, Mm. and yeah, that was an interesting one because ironically, I was actually doing my master's in neuroscience while that concussion hit. So it, you know, it was one of those situations where, you know, the next day I went to, I was in London doing my master's. And the next day I went to a A&E, which is the same thing as the ER room here in the States. And the lady was, was lovely. Um, she asked me to walk a straight line and being the stubborn person that I am, I was like, I'm, I am determined to walk the straight line. So because I passed her, her kind of rule, you know, her test, she quickly said, you know, you're fine. You don't have any problems. Um, minus the fact that literally when I looked at the road, the road was wavy, but you know, she said, because you were able to walk that straight line, you know, just go home, rest it out. Here's the, take three tablets of Tylenol and six tablets of paracetamol, which wow, even in my, you know, state of, of chronic, you know, got chronic pain. I was like three plus six equals nine. (laughs) I'm not going to be taking nine pills in one day just because I have a headache or just because I, I really, you know, I'm in pain. And, and so when I kind of walked away from that initial reaction from, from the doctor saying, just take pills, I, you know, I quickly just said, all right, let's figure out another way to do this. So luckily I had already been in the alternative or rather my family had already been in the alternative health space. Um, Previously, I had cured my own stomach ulcer that I had had when I was 23 with um, just with food, just with juices. Um, My mom was really into homeopathy and I had previously actually lived in India and studied Ayurvedic medicine. So for me, the, you know, the idea of food as medicine or understanding the biochemistry of your body was was not foreign. So the idea of, of kind of pulling away from Western medicine and seeing, seeking alternatives was, was not, you know, was not strange. So basically fast forward and I ended up leaving society completely for three months because I just couldn't deal with looking at a screen, with being around all the devices that were around with, you know, kind of horrible food, bad mold, bad air quality, you know, that is prevalent in large cities like London. And um, so I removed myself from that situation. I met with a number of different specialists over the course of the 12 of the 12 to 14 months. Um, and basically it was around 14 specialists, I think I counted, all in different fields, all different specialties around, you know, around brain injury and neurorehabilitation. And oftentimes the specialists would see me do a test of some sort and say, you're fine. You know, this is all in your head. And it's not necessarily because they're, you know, that they're trying to do, 
to, to not, you know, heal a patient. It's just that oftentimes these tests don't really show what you're feeling as a patient, right? It's not, it, while tests are fantastic, and I think that they're an incredible baseline, sometimes we do have to actually listen to the intuition and listen to what our bodies are really telling us. So for me, my symptoms were chronic headaches every single day for 14 months. I mean, wake up in the morning, headache, go to bed at night, headache. And it was debilitating. It was constant. If anybody's lived with chronic pain, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And um, I had eye pain, kind of visual um, impairment. I had amnesia. So I would read something for, you know, for school. Uh, I would read some scientific journal and I'd be reading it for four hours, taking notes, everything. Next morning, I'd wake up, I would read, you know, reread my notes and I wouldn't remember a thing. Now, if you've spent four hours <laughs> studying something and reading something, you would think that the next day you would remember you know, remember some details. Yeah. Yeah. So. Frustrating. So were you sleeping okay at that time? Okay. I guess is a, a pretty general term. Yeah. I mean, I didn't, I've never had too many issues with sleep in general. I've always been a good sleeper. I would say after the concussion, I had issues. Right. And it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily that I wasn't, you know, on the clock, I was still sleeping um, seven hours, six hours, something like that. I wasn't sleeping as, you know, and then some, some days it would be sleeping 15 hours. Right. So I would, I would go between, but I felt like I just wasn't getting restful sleep, you know? Um, or I always just felt fatigued. I always felt that my, my brain just was overwhelmed and over, over extenuated, which is exactly what a concussion really is. You know, you, you, when you get, when your brain gets slapped, right? Because usually what, I mean, what a concussion is, is in your brain is hit against the side of, of your skull, right? And so therefore your brain gets a bruise of some sort. So if you think about any other injury that we have, you break a wrist, right? What do you do when you break a wrist? Go to the you ER. <laughs> you go to the ER, you go to the ER, exactly. They look at it. They see that you've broken your bones or tendons or whatever it is, and you put a cast on it. You immobilize it. Yeah. How are you going to immobilize a brain? Good question. Tricky, tricky. You can't. So I'm wondering if, I mean, I'm just so curious how many people have had concussions and maybe so don't even say, know it. Right. So that, that's a really, really good point. I'm so glad you brought it up because, so they say, so I think the CDC says three to 4 million cases a year in the US, right? Now, reported cases or estimated? Reported, I believe. Okay. Um, but that's a really good point because what defines a concussion? What defines a, you know, there's, there's traumatic brain injury. There is a mild, you know, traumatic brain injury is a TBI. There's a, there's a mild TBI as well. So if you're, you know, walking mm -hmm. down, you know, down the stairs and you slip and you fall and you slightly hit your, you know, bump your head, is that a concussion? Maybe, maybe not, you know? Um, and oftentimes we can't, you know, there's no real good test out there. Yes, you can get a CT scan. Yes, you can get an MRI scan, but not often are are, are the symptoms showed up showing up there. So you could have some, you know, you could have symptoms that are continuing on down. And that's because when you hit your, your head or you had whiplash with your neck, right? Um, then then you're not showing anything on the CT or the, or the MRI, but you are having kind of the axons between between your neurons have had some splintering, right? And that's causing a lot of your brain in, brain issues, your or your trauma, or your fatigue. So, Renee, your question about how many have we had, how many 
how often is it or how common is it? It's it's fairly common and many people don't realize that they've even had them or they don't remember because chances are when they were a kid, they fell while playing soccer, while running, while whatever, right? And yeah. because they didn't go to an ER or because they didn't have, you know, have a scan done, they don't actually know whether they've got had a concussion. And what's what's interesting is that again, concussion symptoms, PCS, post-concussive symptoms, can occur for weeks on end, for months on end, for years on end. You know, this is not something that it's not kind of that you know, weekend warrior where, you know, you went for a run, you hurt yourself. Okay. Now, you know, five days, you ice it and then you're good to go. Like a brain and a brain injury is so, so tied in with how we experience and because we cannot, how we experience life and because we cannot actually immobilize our brains, it's very, very difficult to then heal your brain fully. So the first, I mean, the, from a immobilization standpoint, you know, the, the, the main thing is just try and do less, less of our daily lives, because even by living, I mean, let's go to the extreme, to the extreme, right? If you live a monastic life, let's say, right, where you're really doing nothing, I guess you're meditating, right? And you're, you're sitting, you're meditating, you're having a little bit of food and, you know, you're barely moving around, right? You're not having the barrage of, of notifications and, and ads and et cetera, Right. Even if you live that simple monastic life, your brain is still very involved. Your brain is still sorting out how to push food down through your system. Your brain is still very active in terms of understanding where you are in, in time and space. So right now I'm sitting and I'm speaking with you girls. And, you know, at the same time, I can very, very much feel, you know, where my, where my feet are sitting, where my, where my, where, how I'm sitting on the chair my brain is is required to do all that and still be very plugged in even though i'm not quote unquote actively using my brain you know so it's yeah. it's interesting cuz with concussions a lot of people are like oh well you know just just don't try and not do anything and that seems like such a a simple recommendation but in truth that really is the best recommendation because by that is the closest that we can get to immobilizing your brain I'm just I, thinking about how many times I've bruised different parts of my body. Like if I bang my wrist, sometimes I don't know how it came about, but then I see a bruise a few days later, but I'm not going to stop using my arm, right? My right hand, I do everything with it. I brush my teeth, I write with it, but my wrist doesn't control my hormones, my digestion. It does not inform the rest of my body. It cannot imagine bruising such a critical organ and not knowing about it. Yeah. And when you think about sleep, like I guess sleep, you could technically look at as like rest and repair for your brain, but at the same time, your brain is super active. I guess it's not moving around, but it's active. But do you think sleep is still, I guess, a really critical part of the healing process? I mean, sleep to me is, is almost number one, right? With respect to concussions, because again, that is the time that you, you are least active. Yes, there's still activity, right? Of course. Um, but that is the least active, right? And it's also just a moment for your brain to just re- rest and, and rejuvenate itself. So again, I mean, the immediate week, I would say after my this last concussion, I slept probably like 14 hours a day. 
the immediate week afterwards. Mm. And then it would, and then I got back to the norm, right. Of the six hours or eight hours or whatnot. Right. But yeah, immediately after it was sleep. So what they, what they often say is if somebody has had a concussion, make sure that they don't fall asleep immediately. So within 12 hours of the concussion, they shouldn't sleep. Right. Or if they are sleeping, then they are, are doing so under supervision. So if you hurt your head at 8 PM at night, yeah, fine, go sleep, but have somebody around that night just to make sure that everything's fine, right? Make sure that you don't slip into, you know, a coma if you, or slip into something that could actually be worse, right? So I didn't do that. I went salsa dancing, came back home, immediately, <laughs> immediately fell asleep. I slept from <laughs> 1 a.m. until 3 p.m. that night, immediately after salsa dancing. So I wasn't exactly doing the right thing, but now I know. So, but yeah, sleep is, is the number one in terms of just overall rest and repair. For me, the, the other things that were tremendous and, and really, really helped was omega-3s. There's an, an macro dosing with omega-3, right? I mean, we're talking about like nine, nine grams in the first week. Mm-hmm. So, you know, And is omega- that like a blend, like a blend of EPA and DHA or... Yeah, exactly. Just a blend. Exactly. Okay. You want the blend. Yeah. There's a really, really good book that I refer people a lot to. It's called uh, When Brains Collide. Uh, it's by Michael Lewis. He was he was a US Army doctor. Um, effectively, he basically said that when when arm, army vets or you know folks who are often getting brain injuries, right? Think about in combat or you know, just in general, they're getting bashed and hit and whatnot. Um, one of the big things that he noticed was that omega-3s, which are the polyunsaturated fats, which your brain needs, and unfortunately, which we cannot make endogenously, we have to, you know, it's, we're born with a certain amount, but we can't actually make it by ourselves. He said that with army, that's what he would do, what he would put them on a macro, macro dose of omega-3s. And then he slowly started seeing people just get kind of their brains getting back back online. So he, his protocol, um, kind of, it's called the omega-3 protocol is again, it's nine grams, I think that first week, and then you start to wane off. But what he, what he says is that omega-3 is not one of those things that, you know, and, and in general, even if you are feeling well after, you know, after two weeks, after three months, whatever it is, and your brain starts feeling better, he said, ultimately, omega-3 is something that it's, it's a nutrition, you know, it's something that you want to keep upkeep and have in your, in your daily life, because it is by having your brain have that, that buffer of omega-3 around every cell, right? It's kind of like an airbag. Um, then if you do get another concussion in the future, you're going to be better prepared. You're going to have more airbags around to actually protect you. So it's one of those things where- Interesting. We've all probably had concussions or some sort of brain injury when we were kids. So we've all, we're already we've we've already kind of messed up, if you will, with respect to our brains. So, so we should, you're driving a car with airbags in it. Exactly. Exactly. So we might as well uptake our omega three in general, and then you know if and when we do get some sort of brain injury or you know just slip and fall because that happens. You know you don't have to be crazy like me and you know go downhill skiing or whatever I was doing, right? Or salsa dancing. Um, but, but the dopamine rush. <laughs> so yeah, so Omega-3, yeah. Um, again, his book is fantastic. Is, um, I'm curious, is that nine, nine grams, is that one once a day or you split that up? No, his, I think it was something like three pills, three times a day. Three times a day, okay. Uh, but again, it very much it very much depends on how you're taking your Omega-3s. If you're eating it, 
just straight, if you're having sardines, if you're taking it in pill format, if you're taking it as a natural fish oil, it really, really depends. So again, his book just lies, lays every bit of that out in terms of what the mix between EPA and DHA should be, um, what types of, you know, what to look out for as well when you're choosing an omega-3. Uh, because again, it's, it, if you are taking it in pill format, you potentially could be getting rancid or, you know, not very good fish oil. Um, so he just, he lays it all out really beautifully. Great. Great. We'll have to put that, that book in the show notes. Yeah. So Dasha, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think before, I don't know if it was that the last concussion, but you were a vegetarian at some point. And then did you make dietary changes in addition to the supplementation? Oh yeah. Big time. So I, I was vegetarian for nine years because when, frankly, I was, I was apprenticing in a, at an Ayurvedic hospital in India and I was taking care of the cows. And every Thursday they had a cow puja, um, which is kind of a prayer for the cows because the cow is so sacred in India. Um, we use the cow um, dung to make patties for the fire. We use their milk. We use, you know, for ghee. I mean, you use it for a lot of things. And uh, and so when I saw those cows, I just, I realized there was no way that I could kill that cow. And so for me, it became it became kind of a question of if I can't kill an animal, a cow or fish, whatever it is, if I can't kill that, then why should I be paying somebody else to do it? Right. So for me, it became that that's how I became vegetarian. It also was an, a, it kind of coincided with me in the States because I was traveling. So I was a consultant before all this. Um, I was a management consulting, traveling around, leaving home on Mondays, living in hotels and eating at restaurants and coming back on Thursday nights. So for me, because I was traveling around so much, I was eating at restaurants and I noticed that it was, you know, anytime that I ate meat, my stomach would hurt. Now, we were eating at pretty good restaurants, sometimes not. Sometimes you got stuck at, you know, the local store. <laughs> but uh, but I, I was just one week that I, you know, I stopped eating meat for that week and I noticed that I didn't have any stomach pains. So interestingly enough that I, when I was in Europe on a, another project, I didn't have those same stomach pains. So to me, it was, it, it was one, when I'm in the States and I eat meat, I end up having stomach pains. When I'm in Europe, I don't. And then that coincided with, taking that sabbatical and being an Indian and working with the cows. And so it was just all one of those, you know, if my stomach hurts anyways, and I don't want to kill the animals, I'm just going to become vegetarian. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Right. <laughs> That's so, funny. I had a similar experience. I, when I was in college, I went and volunteered at a native American tribe in uh, South Dakota. And we participated in a bison killing where they, they bless the animal. And then they literally use every single part of that animal to make a soup, to make, uh, materials for everything in the home and in their daily lives. And I was like, I can't, I can't eat the meat anymore. So I was a vegetarian for many, many years, you know, and then I slowly made my way back because I felt like shit. I was tired all the time, getting sick, you know, like you go on this discovery. And that's interesting. You bring up just food quality across countries. It's so different. Like, is it as simple as the wheat being deaminated or is there glyphosate in the, in the crops? There's so many things to look at, but so- yeah. You and I think after these concussions that you, well, yeah. So, I mean, I think, I think that's a really interesting point that you bring up in terms of being vegetarian and then seeing, you know, seeing how they use from nose to tail. Right. And I think to mm -hmm. me now that I'm in this biohacking world, which I think is, you know, we're seeing a lot, a lot of people, you know, having a lot of collagen eating, you know, the, the parts that 
you know, the kind of the liver or the snout or whatever it is and, and fully eating an animal from, from again, nose to tail. And you see that. And in reality, it's, it is quite beautiful, you know, in terms of that process. So I, I go back, you know, I, I understand the, the vegan on ethos and I understand, sure. the veg, you know, cause I, I effectively live that, but yeah, I mean, in terms of, in terms of my health, ultimately, when I had the concussions and when I realized that I just, my, my brain wasn't firing, you know, and it wasn't working. And I, you know, I would read something and I just wasn't able to remember what it was. Or I, I, I was, I would sit on one page for 20 minutes. It's like, what am I reading? You know, and it's, it's, that, it's that brain fog. It's that. And so ultimately I, I got really interested in you know, I started following a, a doctor by the name of Dr. Jack Cruz, and he a lot of you know he had some really interesting points of view. And one of the things that he talks about is again, kind of going back to the source and see and seafood, and seafood being such an amazing thing for for the brain. So for me, omega threes became the all right. Well, you know, my brain is the is the thing that I kind of pride myself on. You know, it was you know it's it's fundamental to who we are, and if you can't be the individual that you are because you've just had a brain injury. Well, then, then, you know, for me, at least it was an exploration of, okay, well, well, am I willing to, you know, if I have two options here and it's me or, or facing the, the fact of killing fish, you know, in my case, you know, in order to have my brain back, then yeah, you know what, I would be willing to do it. So now, so I'm, so I switched over from vegetarian to pescatarian, started eating a lot of fish. Um, we're talking like five, six times a day, or sorry, five, six times a week, excuse me. Um, <laughs> and, um, and, but just trying to be as careful as I possibly could be because of the, of the potential for mercury. So, you know, there's an acronym, acronym out there, SMASH, in terms of the, the best fish that you can have. So I think it's a SMASH, S-M-A-S-H. Salmon, mackerel, anchovies, herring, sorry, sardines and herring. So salmon, mm-hmm. that makes sense. Mackerel, anchovies, sardines and herring are the ones that are the best they say. Now, again, sustainably sourced and and all that, but I guess the the key is you're trying to get ultimately you're trying to get to the fish that are quite small, right? Because if they're small, then they're on they're lower on the on the food chain, chances are they're going to have less mercury in them. That being said, you know, I mean for me, I noticed that well, once I started eating more fish, I noticed that my brain just went back up, you know, not fully, right? It takes time. Again, it's your brain needs time, just like a wrist, a broken wrist or anything needs time to to come back online. But slowly but surely that, I mean, those omega threes and that fish was really, really helpful. Interesting enough, given that health is so intertwined and intermingled, I guess, I ended up actually testing my mercury levels later on and they were, or they were slightly elevated. So it's, you know, I ended up healing one part of, of the equation with, in terms of my brain. But then when I looked at my intracellular test, then I noticed that my mercurial levels were a little higher. So it's, it's this constant balance and this is this battle of, okay, what am I willing to take or willing to give up? Living and learning always. Yeah. I was the same way. I mean, I used to love fish. I mean, mainly tuna and salmon, but my mercury was off the charts the lab was like, what are you doing? <laughs> Do you remember what like, your levels were? I don't, but it was through Quicksilver Scientific. I don't know if yeah. that's who you tested through. So it's a hair, blood, urine test, but it was the mercury that comes from seafood that was off the charts versus the mercury that's found in like mercury, dental fillings, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, just like if you like were looking at the range, mine was like 10 times the range. Yeah. 
yeah. I don't know if you remember How what did you was. Yeah. So my, so I did, I didn't do the Quicksilver one. I actually really want to do that hair mineral test um, because I'm curious as to where, you know, one, where my levels are now, uh, but yeah. two, also where, where they were, you know, where it's coming from. I did a Genova diagnostics test. Um, okay. And again, I think my, so I, in terms, I mean, every test is going to be different, right? But the levels right. that they gave me, I think it was 14. Now it goes up to up to 100, right? So, oh. you know, it's it wasn't so bad, but they, you know, what the doctors end up saying is anything over 10 is something where you start saying, hey, maybe I, maybe I should be detoxing or maybe I should cut it back because I was the same way. I was eating tuna yeah. left, right, and center, which tuna is one of the <laughs> biggest problems out there. I know, it was just so good. So it was oh, yeah. Yeah. But so no, if, I if, gave it up. <laughs> yeah, I would say, I mean, to me at least because I don't eat meat. So, I mean, now again, I looked at my tests and so in terms of my tests and you know, I'm fine. Right. For the mm-hmm. most part, with the exception of that mercury, which is a little bit high, um, again, a little high. And so it's just stop, dash, stop eating fish six times a week. Maybe you should eat only two times a week <laughs> Yeah, um, and then supplement with omega-3, you know? Right. It's all that biohacking, like like for me. So my mercury was really high, but then genetically, I cannot get my DHA and EPA from plant based sources. Like you know, some people can eat chia seeds, flax seeds, get their omega threes. My conversion is crap genetically. So like I have to just supplement with omega three, which is fine. I also think that there there is something to be said about um, kind of getting getting your omega three from um, algae versus fish. There's, you know, when I was looking into it, because I did, I did in the very beginning say, okay, well, why don't I just supplement with algae instead of fish? And what I saw, at least the the studies that were out back then were were basically saying that I would have to eat, you know, enough seaweed to fill this room every single day just to, you know, to get the levels that I needed, which I really wasn't going to do. (laughs) Yeah. Hope you like it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Actually, I went to a practitioner once and she was like, I need you to eat a pack of seaweed three times a day for three months. I was like, oh, oh my gosh. gosh, suddenly you're like, I'm never hungry. I don't know why. <laughs> Throw that into your smoothie. Your skin you don't have an appetite. <laughs> yeah. What I also yeah. found was interesting that the, um, so they say that the dry weight of your brain, 30% of the dry weight of your brain is omega-3s which wow. I think is fascinating given that, again, our brain is the, is the biggest energy, I mean, besides the heart, right, is the two biggest areas that just suck energy from your body, right? So if our brain is 30% omega-3, you know, maybe we should be supplementing with it, you know? Yeah. Um, sounds and, important. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> wow. So it sounds like that really moved the needle for you. Can you tell us what else? So when you, you sort of like removed yourself from life and were in nature, what else were you really focusing on? Yeah. So a couple things, non-native electromagnetic fields. So Ooh, EMFs. Yeah, talk about that, please. So as part of interesting, uh, interesting enough, so concussions, what they're noticing is the concussions can actually trigger somebody to become electrohypersensitive. So EHS. So EHS is a condition that certain countries will are recognizing nowadays. So I don't think that the US has yet recognized it. And I know that the UK has, uh, as well as a number of different European countries. But effectively, electrohypersensitivity is for those people who truly, when they're around devices, start to feel some certain way. It could be fatigue, it could be headaches, it could be tingling up the arm, it could be lack of sleep. It could be a number of different things. So it, it, the, the challenge with EHS is that 
your symptoms can vary. You know, it doesn't, it, it, it could be multiple different things, right? Um, so for me, effectively, non-native electromagnetic fields is anything that's coming from a device, anything. So it's a field that's invisible that we, you know, we, we can't, we can test, uh, but we can't see it. Uh, anything that has a battery, anything that's plugged in. So your, you know, your cell phone, your laptop, your Kindle, your aura ring, all of these things, they, they emit an EMF. Now, some people are, you know, some people are sensitive to them. The vast majority of us aren't, or we don't think that we are because we don't feel it on a day-to-day. That being said, if we are constantly being bombarded, then these EMFs, what they do is they, I mean, there's a number of different books that, that I can I can reference to, but effectively what they are doing is causing additional inflammation in the body because they're allowing more calcium to get in through the voltage-gated calcium channels. So over time, right, this is not something that's going to happen in a moment, but over time, you can end up having more inflammation. That inflammation can lead to a whole host of different of different ailments, right? It could be leaky. It could be leading to your leaky gut. It could be leading to your hormonal imbalances. It could be leading to, you know, the fact that you're not sleeping very well. It could be leading to potentially a lower libido. There's so many different things that, that too many devices around you lead to inflammation. That lead, inflammation can lead to many other things. So for me, EHS and, and being just EMF sensitive just required me to get away from all of these devices, right? Because when I was away from them, I felt less fatigued. When I was away from them, I had my I had less chronic headaches. You know, the headache was still there, but it was a you know a three out of ten instead of a six out of ten. You know, interestingly enough, that when I started getting further and further into understanding AHS and EMF sensitivity, I just start meeting other people that are, that were kind of like me, if you will. And there was a woman, she, she runs a really interesting group called we are the evidence.org. I think it is, uh, Daphna Tahover. And she, she herself, she had a really interesting story, which is basically, she used to work in the Israeli military. She was always surrounded by computers. She, um, you know, she was all, she was fine. She's a lawyer. Uh, she was fine. And then in her thirties, all of a sudden she ended up having you know, it was a complete break. It was like that watershed moment that something broke and, and she, it, her, her life changed drastically. I think she was sitting on her laptop or something. And again, she got tingling down her arm. She thought that it was just a laptop. She bought a new laptop, you know, and, and it, and it oh, spiraled. So she was living in New Jersey at the time and she, she and her husband, you know, they, they tried to move different houses and then she ended up having to leave and actually live in a completely, you know, in the woods because her symptoms were so strong. So it's one of those things where, you know, you could be like me where, you know, I, I sense it. I know that when I'm on a laptop or a computer or, you know, if I'm surrounded by these devices, then I'm wiped specifically after being on an airplane, for example, I, I, you know, for, if I fly somewhere, regardless where I, you know, if it's a short flight, long flight, it doesn't really matter. I, for the two days afterwards, I'm wiped completely. I need to sleep. I need more water. I need more, you know, more supplementation just because again, I just feel like my cells have been dehydrated or have been kind of poisoned by, by these invisible fields around me. So, yeah. So for me, I think going back to your original question, you know, what, what was a good, you know, what were the other hacks that I did? I started getting very, very sensitive about EMS. So I would plug my laptop in, uh, rather than have it on Wi-Fi, my phone is always off, you know, on airplane mode, and it's usually very far away from me. Um, I my phone is never in my room at night 
Um, you know, in general, I don't remember the last time that I had my phone right there, you know, right next to my head. Um, I'm always using some sort of, of, um, either it's on speaker or, you know, on headphones that are air tubes so that it's farther away from my brain. Because again, my brain is so sensitive because I keep on bashing it that, you know, I'm, I'm just trying to do whatever I possibly can to mitigate and, and remove, you know, remove those things because I, I can recognize that, you know, all of these devices are, well, really poisoning us. <laughs> let's, let's put it that way. But at the same time, I'm not really wanting to live the life of a hermit just quite yet. So how do I balance that? And I think, balance, yeah. right. I think to me, you know, with EMFs, it's very, very easy to get into a, a very fearful state and, um, and start down a rabbit hole, which, which is exhausting, frankly. Um, and I think that there is a lot of, a lot of things that we need to know about, right? We need to know that these are harmful and we need to keep them away from our kids and we need to keep them, you know, we need to keep our phones away from our heads. We need to keep, we need to have protective devices. Um, but to me, the name of the game is mitigation, not, you know, getting fearful and, you know, and saying, okay, fine, I'm, I'm just going to go back to never having a cell phone. Um, but I think there's a, there's a number of different techniques that you can do to, to really reduce your exposure. Um, you know, some sure. of which I've already talked about. Yeah. I think you're not you using ear pods. <laughs> yeah. Right. Not putting those pods directly into your ears, which are talking to your brain. Just oh goodness. Yeah. Brain. I mean, if I, if I, when I see those people walking around with those AirPods and you know, it, to me, it literally looks like, I don't know, somebody pouring cyanide into your brain. Like it's, it's, I, know, it's, I think that too. Yeah. Just yeah. frying your brain. That's what I picture. Yeah. And if you, I mean, if you go back, uh, in terms of, so with the devices, I mean, I don't know about the, the Bluetooth head, headsets because I haven't looked into them too much, but I mean, I know that they are frying my brain, therefore I don't want to use them. Right. But yeah. even, even the devices themselves, right. If you, if you look into the FCC, if you look into what, you know, what the regulation is, the regulation basically when it was created was I think back in 1970s was the last time that they actually looked at it. And the regulation of it's called SAR. So standard absorption rate, that standard absorption rate is what they used to, de to define whether a phone was detrimental or not. So basically what they did back then was they, they took a phone, they had a dummy head, the dummy head, which is made of styrofoam, dummy head, which was modeled after a male who's six foot two and, a, and a, a more than 150 pounds. Um, I think it was 200 pounds, if my memory is correct. Um, and they put the phone next to his head, right? What they said was that if the, the temperature in his brain increased by a certain degrees, I believe it was two degrees, um, then that would be caused kind of, that would be thermal increase in the brain uh, in the brain cells. And therefore there could be some brain brain damage, right? Or there could be some sort of an, an issue. All sounds because really scientific. Yeah, exactly. All sounds really scientific, sounds really good. Minus the fact that neither of the three of us are men. <laughs> Or, or six we, foot two. Or six foot two or have styrofoam <laughs> right. heads. Oh, and also when, when they did the actual, you know, when they did the testing, they showed that it was for a, a, a certain number of minutes. I think it was six minutes or so that the phone was by, you know, by the head. And it had to be like five millimeters away from the head. So when was the last time that anybody had a phone call that was only six minutes where they held their phone, you know, X millimeters away from the head? You know, it, it just, it doesn't, it's science as in it was, it was research that was done 
but it's not realistic research, you know, at least in, in this day and age. And then, and then couple that with the fact that we now compared to the 1970s, you know, we have been using phones a lot more, right? So it's twofold. It's one, we're using phones a lot more. And then two, our phones are a lot more powerful, right? Mm -hmm. So it's just coupling. Once you start on kind of untangling and, and pulling further and further, you'll, you'll see that, yes, these devices have not been tested properly, or if they have, then they are not necessarily for us as individuals, as women, or as, you know, in the way that we are using these devices today. So to me, it's, you know, yeah, the devices have tremendous capabilities. I mean, again, the reason that we're all connected is because we were all on, on our Instagram and our own devices. But again, I want to keep that as far away as possible because I know that it hasn't been tested properly. Right. You yeah. keep doing this like universal symbol for the phone where you like put your, your hand up to your ear. It's funny because I don't, I don't see that many people talking on the phone like that anymore, but now because of headphones and especially the AirPods, people basically have their phone next to their head all day long. And both ears. In both ears. Like for work, they just put their earpods in and that's how they work. They sit at their computer and they never take it out, whether they're on a phone call or listening to something or not. They're just sitting there. Yeah. So I've had a few times, this like very, very rarely happens where I've had to put my phone to my ear. Like if I'm in public and I have an important call and I don't have my headphones with me, like some weird scenario, if it's up to my ear for more than 30 seconds, it starts burning. Like inside yeah. my ear is burning and that really terrifies me. I get that with my hands a little bit. If I hold my phone for too long, I just feel this energy in my hands. that really kind of freaks me out. And yeah. I don't know, Dasha, do you know, is there any difference between someone that has that hypersensitivity and then just, I don't know, someone that doesn't have it or doesn't know that they have it? How is the inflammation affecting? Is it affecting everyone? It's just some people are more aware of it. Yeah, it's the latter. Yeah, everybody. I mean, it affects all of us, right? So the EMFs are ultimately affecting all of ourselves all the time, right? So all of the, all of these devices around us, they are impacting us. Now the question just becomes whether you are sensitive enough to it, whether that watershed moment has happened, right? Um, so, you know, in my case, before the concussion, I wouldn't care, right? Yeah, I wouldn't, I, would, I was flying left, right, and center all the time, right? Now, perhaps the fact that I, would, I had been flying so often, so many times, and I was always on my phone, I was always, I mean, I've been connected, you know, before I was working like 16 hour days and always on all the devices, having multiple screens in front of me, mm -hmm. right? So perhaps for me, not only was it the fact that I had the concussion, but it was also the fact that, you know, I had already, my cells had kind of already upped their dose to such an extent that now they were just saying, you know what, we're done. We can't, we can't handle this anymore, you know? So yeah. yes, yeah. I mean, is, do, do, is, is it affecting all of us all the time? Yes. Um, do we all feel it? No. Is it something that we should all be mitigating against? Absolutely, because again, it's it's a toxic load, right? It's it's just like mercury, where perhaps you could have high doses, but you don't feel it, but get it high enough, and you better believe that you're going to have an impact. Right. I mean, if inflammation is the root of all chronic disease, we're being affected by that, and suddenly you're in the hospital with a viral infection. Maybe that's something to consider. Right? Yeah. And I think the other thing is when we talk about EMFs, to me. Besides the fact that we have, you know, that we're just not informed, I think the thing that frightens me the most is kids and kids being surround, you know, being put in front of an iPad, being, you know, always being having headphones or having all these devices around them, you know, and children have more water weight than, than adults do. What is water? 
water is a conductive element, right? Mm -hmm. or is a conductor. So if you can just imagine how those little cherubs are are being <laughs> impacted more so than we are, you know, to me, it's yeah. just it it's akin to to secondhand smoke, in my opinion. You know, and yeah. and so for me, anytime that I see a child that's you know sitting in front of a a, a screen for too long, I just get really frightened. Well, and especially before their skull is fully formed, you know, their poor yeah. brains. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, so EMF yeah. is kind of, yeah, is, is a big, a big one. one. Mm-hmm. Well, those uh, are some great tips. I think a lot of people are not aware of the issues. So I'm really glad you brought that up. And yeah. hopefully this wasn't frightening for people. I think you gave great tips that everyone can start doing today without moving into middle of nowhere, West Virginia. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, there's no, there's really no, you know, in my opinion, there's really no need. I mean, so, so quickly to just run through the things that I would do. So one, I would turn off the Wi-Fi router at night if you could. Um, If, you know, that's a really easy hack, you can plug something in so that your Wi-Fi router turns off on a timer. Uh, Effectively, you don't need Wi-Fi, you know, from 11 o'clock at night until six in the morning. So why are your cells being bombarded, right? That'd be the first thing. Second is keep your phone away from you as much as you possibly can because there's the inverse square law, which basically states that if you have the phone right next to you, you're getting bombarded 100%. If it's literally a foot away or two feet away, you're you're reducing that by a quarter of the price, you know, up, up to a quarter of it. So literally having the phone, you know, within eyesight distance, but but far away from you, you're impacting yourself in a positive way. Uh, I would get a, a shield of some sort or like a case. Um, I really like Defender Shield. I've tested that with my EMF meter and I see a very big difference. Um, there's a number of different products out there, but that's the one that I really like. I don't have any affiliate commission or whatever, but so they're good. I would, I would also try and um, wire your computer if you can. Um, especially right now, we're all sitting at home. We're all in front of the computers. You don't necessarily need it to be, you know, plugged oh in from a Wi-Fi. So if you possibly can, turn your Wi-Fi off and just plug it in, and then you can stream Netflix even better. So, Ooh, yeah, point. I think. I mean, again, there's there's and then the and then headphones, right? That would be probably the last, like the, the fifth one that's really quick, which is get rid of those Bluetooth headphones, even if it's not the AirPods, even if it's just one of those old school ones that was just on your, you know, one ear. Um, what ends up happening with those Bluetooth headphones is that one, your your phone is already giving off a, n- a number of these fields, like the, the EMFs, right? Then that Bluetooth device, which is next to your brain all the time, because you know exactly what you were saying, that it's we're putting these headphones into our ears and then forgetting about them and wearing them all day long, right? They are still conducting. They are still having an EMF around them. So not only do they just have them already, but then they're signaling back to the phone. So you're getting double zapped once from your phone and then twice from the actual Bluetooth device. And then if you do have the headphones, which is with both ears, then they have to communicate as well so that you're getting sound signal correctly without lag between the right and the left ear. Through your so, brain. Through your brain. Exactly. Through your brain. And that so, goes for all the other Bluetooth devices, right? Um, I don't know how the Apple Watch works. Apple Watch, Fitbit, any, any of the Bluetooth trackers. I assume they're all Bluetooth, right? Yep. Well, that's what I love about Aura Ring is that it can still collect data while it's in airplane mode, mm-hmm. right? Like you sync it and then turn it on airplane mode. I've been experimenting with a Whoop, which I'm not totally in love with the metrics, but it's interesting every time I turn it back on, it's like, you really need to keep your signal on so we keep collecting your data. I'm like, no, I don't want to. But it, it essentially yells at me every time I, I sync it again and turn my Bluetooth on. Yeah, just I um, I have my Aura Ring here, 
I, you know, I, I don't wear it during the day. Right. Um, because, because again, I notice, I know how sensitive I am. I've had muscle, muscle testing done. Um, even with the, with the ring on Bluetooth, I am still, I'm still completely weak. You know, when somebody does a muscle wow. test on me, my, my wrist just goes, my arm just goes and flies, flies down really quickly because again, that is impacting my, my ability to, you know, my muscles ability to, to hold up force. Such a great way to measure where you are currently. Interesting. Yeah. So just so, to round this out, I know you're big on earthing, sunshine. I'm sure that was a big part of your yeah. journey. Yeah, yeah. So so the other two things I was going to mention, yeah, is is earthing and sunshine. Um, so earthing, there's a really great book, Clint Ober. He is a huge, uh, he has a fantastic story, fantastic book. I think the documentary is actually called Earthing. Effectively, earthing is exactly what it sounds. <laughs> Going outside barefoot. <laughs> with your feet Connecting touching to the earth. <laughs> um, uh, the reason why I find it to be tremendous is again, you're surrounded by all these devices. These devices are stealing electrons from you, right? Electrons are important for our bodies. Why? Because we are electrical beings. Our hearts focus on our function on electricity. Our brains focus on and function on electricity. So if we don't have enough electrons, if we are not net negative, then ultimately we, again, are having potential for chronic inflammation. So what the, what earthing does and why earthing is so important is that the earth beautifully as it was designed is always net negative. So literally walking outside and sitting outside in your barefoot or with bare feet for 20 minutes a day, you know, can actually you are sucking up those electrons from your feet or however you're sitting into your body which is combating all the, the the fact that we're giving off of electrons to all these devices. So when people when people talk about antioxidants and free radicals, oftentimes antioxidants people think of blueberries, right? Or they think of <laughs> things to put into their smoothies. Right. But yeah. oftentimes people don't really know what antioxidants are, or what they do, or why they're important. Um, we're and just told to take them, right? They're just told to take them. They're important. It's the coolest superfood ever. You must have yeah. them. Like, <laughs> uh, and in reality, antioxidants do exactly what earthing does, which is they give off electrons. So your free radicals that your body creates because free radicals also help to fight off inflammation to some extent. Um, but free radicals, you have, you're missing, you know, they're missing that electron, right? So antioxidants end up giving an electron, donating that electron, and so that those free radicals get immobilized effectively. Um, now, earthing does the exact same thing as antioxidants, as the same thing as blueberries. So if you don't want to go to the grocery store because you're stuck inside, um, you know, or you can't, you know, you can't find blueberries, then earthing is a pretty, pretty easy, cheap, and you know, free essentially. And, yeah, free. Thing. Yeah. Um, so yeah, earthing. It sounds crazy. Again, there's. Um, I would recommend anybody just to go watch the movie because there is quite a bit of science behind it. Clint himself was was a, a founder or a fundamental in um, putting telephone wires and and grounding telephone wires back back in the day. So he understands mm. a, a thing or two about electricity, and then he took that same knowledge and applied it to the body and saw that many people their you know the inflammation that they had, the chronic inflammation that they had, started going down. Um, so yeah, take a look at the book, take a look at the, at the movie. Um, and then the last thing get yeah. outside, and I think anyone can say, you know, you, if you've walked on the beach barefoot or walked in grass barefoot, you know, you feel better, right? I don't think anyone can argue that. Oh, tremendous. Yeah. And I, and it's, it's one of those things that when was the last time we all felt really good? 
usually on vacation. Where are we on vacation? Usually on a beach or you know, in a park or in your backyard and you're sitting outside. You know, like usually it's out in sunshine, away from devices, grounding or, you know, barefoot somewhere, eating good food and sleeping in. If that's yeah, there's why no we all feel there. good, why don't we do that more often? Yeah. <laughs> How quickly we forget. Yeah. And then, so yeah, so the last thing is, is sunshine. Uh, and that's kind of a controversial one to some extent, because I think it's the sun has been villainized for, for decades. Um, Absolutely. It's been seen as this is the thing for skin cancer. This is the thing that's, you know, that's causing all these horrible things. I would argue that the verdict is probably the other way. Um, obviously you don't want to overdo it, but there is such tremendous benefits from getting vitamin D from the sunshine that I would argue that it's probably better to go more the route of sunshine rather than less, right? Vitamin D is not just a vitamin, it's a hormone. It helps with our immune system. It helps with a tremendous number of different things. And we right now, net net globally are in a deficit of vitamin D. We, anybody who is living above the latitude of about kind of Washington, DC and above, chances are they have a vitamin D deficiency. Now you can supplement, sure, you know, and there, there is, you know, we should all be supplementing vitamin D every day. But again, it's one of those things what where- What kind are you taking? Right, right. So one of those things is, is you know, how can you get sun, more sunshine in? Because getting vitamin D just in supplement form is never going to be as good as getting it straight on your skin. Um, that being said, I mean, I'm, I'm personally, you know, fair skinned. I'm from Russia originally. I don't like, I mean, my body in general doesn't really like the sun. Mm-hmm. Um, and I realized that that was again, a fallacy and there's a, an element of working your way up to, to be able to build what's called your solar callus. And that, and that is, again, it's something that can be done over time and done smartly, right? So burning, not a good thing. Burning is carcinogenic. Burning leads to skin cancer. Yes, that we know, right? Yeah. Um, so well, like, most not... people just do that on vacation, right? Like through the winter, they're inside in the dark, and then they go on a week cruise in the Caribbean and get fried. Yeah, like, that's where the skin cancer comes in. <laughs> exactly. Don't do that. Don't do exactly. That. Exactly. But waking up in the morning, you know, getting that sunlight in your, you know, in your eyes. Now that is the thing that really helped me, right? Because basically, in terms of your cortisol, in terms of your circadian rhythms that's what ended up actually helping me with sleep. So that sounds crazy. I know. Um, But waking up in the morning, you know, and the first hour of the sunrise is there is no UVB. So staring at the sun in the morning is in that first hour is actually not going to have any negative impacts to your retina. There's not there. You just, you, you physically cannot hurt yourself in that first hour by staring at the sun. Now, because none of us have been doing that, even though it's a practice in India for, for eons, right? And, and it's, people have been doing it for decades. It's not something that we in modern day life do because we're all staying up really late or waking up very, you know, far after the sun has risen. Um, so that's, that, that seems impossible. So when I first started doing it, uh, I could only stare at the sun for 10 seconds. My eyes started watering. It was just, it was painful. It just didn't, it didn't work, right? But again, it's something that you work your way up. And I found that basically when you're, when you're waking up within the first hour of waking up, you have that cortisol spike or you should, uh, because again, it's something to get you out of bed. It's in go, go, go. Um, by putting natural light, natural sunlight into your eyes as one of the first things that comes into your eyes, you are setting that cortisol rhythm through the day. So actually by waking up with sunrise, 
getting that sunrise into your eyes. I mean, using that time to actually just have a moment of gratitude or a moment of, you know, wow, I, I have another day ahead of me, right? This is pretty great. There's people who who did not wake up this morning, right? I mean, not to sound morose, but, mm-hmm. um, and, and then that sets, sets you forward and that sets your body's clock to actually be in line with, with what the day looks like. Um, so yeah. yeah sun- what an easy way to wake up instead of just grabbing that cup of coffee. I mean, uh, Dr. Harry Jones from Dutch, she says like 30 minutes, you have 30 minutes to get sunshine in your eyes and, and that will wake you up right? You don't need to roll yeah. over like a zombie or have your, your coffee maker be your alarm clock. Step <laughs> outside. Yeah. I have to say now that I'm in my new house and we have a rooftop deck and, you know, Vegas, it's sunny 360 days a year or whatever. I'm trying to just do that. Get up there. It's nice because I can just wear whatever up there because no one can see me. You know, I can roll out of bed and go up there, but I think it's starting to help. It's only been 10 days, but people are going to start looking for you now. They're pulling out their binoculars. <laughs> well, the other day, one of my neighbors had a drone flying over and I was in my robe. I was like, oh, I hope he's not filming right now. This could be awkward. <laughs> have to make sure I'm always wearing clothes up there. No. <laughs> so awesome you have that. You'll become a YouTube famous yeah. star. Yeah. One way. But. <laughs> Yeah, but the sun, it's so healing. I love it. Yeah, they used to have um, solariums uh, and there is there is a right. a, a, store, no, a word called heliotherapy where it was heliotherapy, helio being the sun. And they used to have these these solariums back in, I think it was in Austria, before they, they found penicillin and they used to heal people's skin wounds. They used to heal uh, a number of different ailments specifically with the sun. Uh, and then penicillin came out and we decided to go very far away from the sun and slather ourselves with SPF. Oh, interesting. Into the bacteria realm. Yeah. Um, that is also helpful. I love hearing your journey and this, this, the science behind it just makes so much sense. I'm really excited that you were able to go into that. So yeah, I feel like, I feel like I have some things to work on since I know, I know. The solar callusing. That was new for me. What was that? The solar callusing. Oh, oh yeah. I want to do that term. too. But I know I've had two concussions. I mean, I wasn't tested or anything, but based on what happened, I'm sure I did. And I probably had more. So yeah, it's, um, I mean, it's, it's definitely something that most of us have. There's, there's actually, there's a really good company called Wavi, W-A-V-I, and they, they can start, so they're, they can start looking at your brain, right? So they can do an EEG. Um, that's fairly quick. I think it takes like four minutes to do this test and they can actually even tell you the voltage of kind of of your brain in certain parts of your brain. So there is, I mean, in general, there's a QEEG, which is a lot more expensive, a lot more invasive, um, and just takes time to to do. And you have to go to a hospital or, you know, you have to have to, you have to go to a setting to do it. But these guys, they're really starting to look at it from just a, you know, you know, very quickly understanding what is the voltage of specific areas of your brain such that they can say, okay, if you had a, if you had a concussion years ago, maybe that's what's impacting the fact that you, you know, you can't absorb concepts really quickly, or perhaps you can absorb concepts really quickly, but you don't retain them or perhaps, you know, what, you know, a myriad of different things. And then potentially what could you be doing to improve that voltage? Um, because again, both you want a higher voltage because we are electrical. And if you have a higher voltage in your brain, then your brain is, is potentially working more efficiently. Um, so yeah, they're, they're an interesting company that's coming out in the market now. Very cool. Cool. So we want to continue this conversation and go into the the women's biohacking movement, which I'm so happy to have all of this brain history on you. It's really interesting that learning about the brain, we are still learning more and more and more, 
right? And because we still just don't know, like there's new technology that's out there that's starting to give us, again, like Wabi, um, by the way, awesome company. You guys should definitely get a scan. They're fantastic. There are, so there are advances that are going on and we're learning more and more about brain and about our body. Um, and that same advancement and that same research, you know, that is very similar to what's happening in women's health. We're starting to learn more, more and more about specifically about women's health. We've been learning about brains. We really don't know about, or we've been talking about brains. We really don't know that much about it. We're starting to learn more about it because we're having technology like Wavi or whatever it is that that can actually see whether there's changes. And then similarly, women's you know women's studies or women's health specifically hasn't really been studied that much just because we because of a number of reasons. So if you want to hear more from Dasha, we're actually going to continue this episode into next week's episode. So if you enjoyed this one, I certainly did. We certainly did. We love you, Dasha. Check in next week. We're going to continue the conversation and talk about the women's biohacking movement. We will see you then. Love this episode of the Biohacker Babes podcast? Head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. We truly appreciate your support. Until then... Happy biohacking.